John 6, 1 to 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are, uh, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line, and we're continuing our teaching series this morning in the book of John. It's a series where John has been showing us different aspects of who Jesus is. Each time Jesus encounters a different person with a different need, we see something else come out of him that we hadn't seen before. And John is trying to show us all these different pieces of who Jesus is. Today we come to a passage that's fairly well known. Jesus takes a boy's lunch, and from it feeds a sizable crowd. We're told there were 5,000 men there. So when you add in women children, there could have been as many as 20,000 people. It's a very large crowd. Jesus takes a small amount of food, and from that small amount of food, verse 11, makes enough so that everybody had as much as they wanted. They filled 12 baskets with leftovers. He ends up, actually, <laughs> with far more afterward than what he started with. After that, Jesus then walks on water as his disciples are rowing against a headwind. John doesn't mention it, but this is the account where Peter asks then if he can join Jesus out on the waves. Jesus invites him out there, and Peter is able to walk on the water until he looks at the storm and everything around him, takes his eyes off of Jesus, and starts to sink. 
not important to John's point, so he doesn't include it. But these are very well-known stories, very unique stories. The feeding story is the only miracle that Jesus does that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Apparently, it's pretty important. Walking on water, just a little less known, it makes it into three Gospels. I would be willing to bet that even if people don't know a lot about who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, that they've at least heard that he did at one time multiply food and walk on water. Both of these accounts are regularly included when publishers want to put together a Bible story series for children. Very well-known set of stories. The content is well-known. The takeaway, however, is less clear. What are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to learn from this? We know of one other time when Jesus made food for people, but that's it, not a regular miracle of his. We don't know that he ever walked on water again, so why did he do that this time? And why do we need to know that? More to the point, what are we supposed to do with this? You know, wh wh what's the, the natural outcome? Start, start a food ministry? That, that feels a little anticlimactic. Certainly that's not John's intention here. Church has always been concerned to feed those who are hungry, but that desire comes out of other passages, not this one. So what do we do with this? To sort of stand back and, and, and be amazed and say, man, okay, wow, that's cool. Well, I'm not actually sure it is cool. The more you think about it, the walking on water is a really strange story. Other gospel writers tell us that Jesus actually sends the disciples out across the sea without him, which makes you wonder why. Why, why is he sending them out without him? Or then when he walks out there, he walks near them, not to them. Why is he doing that? Why does he get in the boat and, and then they all immediately get to the land? It seems like an awful lot of work for the final outcome. If he can immediately get the boat to where he wants to go, why doesn't he just start there? Why does he walk? Why doesn't he just teleport himself? Why doesn't he teleport the disciples out to the other place across the sea? In order to understand those kinds of questions, you have to pay attention to a very important word. It shows up two times here in this passage. John uses this in verse 2 and then again in verse 14. And you notice here that John does not call these things miracles these supernatural interventions into the natural world. doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. Other gospel writers will refer to Jesus' supernatural interventions at times as miracles. John doesn't. He calls them signs. Why is that? Because these are more than simply the breaking into the natural world of a surprising way to meet the need of the moment. They're, they're more than that. They point beyond that moment to something greater. They point to something about Jesus that you would not really understand unless that sign took place. So if you want to understand what this has to do with you, first you have to understand what is this sign pointing to? And when you understand what the sign is pointing to, then you'll start to understand what the other elements in this story are doing, and then you can start to understand, okay, now I have a sense of what this means for me. Now when you do that, you're going to discover that what you're being offered here is a way to think about your entire life as a Christian. It's especially a way to think about your life as a Christian when your life is hard, when it's difficult. It helps you understand why you often will feel overwhelmed as you try to live the Christian life. I think that's an important question because I think that surprises a lot of us. It certainly has surprised me over the years. We sort of understand that if we disobey God, then we should expect life to be kind of hard. That makes sense. Live against God in God's world, Life's not going to be all that easy. That makes sense. What doesn't 
make as much sense is when you do your best to obey God. You do your best to live a God-honoring, obedient life, and life is still hard. What really doesn't make sense is when you realize that God is often behind the hardness, that he leads you into it. You see him doing that here in John chapter 6. It's Jesus' decision to feed 20,000 people, but then he turns to Philip, verse 5, and he says, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Now, I have no idea what went through Philip's mind, but if that was me, then the, what would go through my mind was, I don't know, this isn't my idea, it's yours. Why are you making my life hard? Or then he tells the gods, I want you to get in the boat without me, row across the lake, and then they run into this headwind that they can barely make any progress against. It's after a long, hard day of ministry, of serving, of passing out food to 20,000 people, collecting the leftovers after them. Why is he telling them to do something that's going to make their life hard? Why tell them to do something so that they're going to have to struggle after they're already exhausted? How does that make any sense? Why does he lead people into hard things, things that are overwhelming, things where they face opposition? Why does he do that? Well, let's bring it home a little bit. If you've been following Jesus even for a couple of weeks, you know that that's also your experience. That if you follow Jesus, he'll start to show you what's wrong in this world. He'll show you areas of need, areas of brokenness. He'll show you where poverty exists in the middle of plenty. He'll show you hatred, greed, racism, injustice in so many different forms it'll make your head spin. He'll show you the human cost from the fallout of idolizing sexuality. He'll show you the inequities between different classes of people and he'll show you the people who get caught in the middle of all that. He'll show you the weak and the vulnerable, those who are at risk from poverty and hatred and greed and racism and injustice, misused sexuality. And he'll look at you and he'll ask you, where are we to buy bread? Where are we to get what these people need to relieve the suffering that they have? He'll ask you those questions. It'll be overwhelming. Or he'll bring it even closer. He'll show you needs not just out there in the community. He'll show you needs in your family, with your housemates. Needs that are going to call you to pour yourself out and pour yourself out and pour yourself out until you also are exhausted. You may not see a whole lot coming back. He'll show you needs that once you see them, you're not going to be able to stop seeing them. He'll show you needs that will leave you overwhelmed, frustrated at times, things that will have you crying out to him, I don't know what to do with this. I'm just one person. I don't have a lot of strength. I don't have a lot of energy. I, I, I don't know what else to try. I, I may not even know where to begin. You don't have to be a Christian very long before you learn that God does stuff like that. That he intentionally crafts places and times when you feel overwhelmed at the need that you see in front of you. That he will put you in places where you're going to struggle, where you're going to get opposition. That he'll direct you into situations where you're going to be moving forward into the headwinds of opposition. Places where a Christian voice from a Christian perspective is not valued, not welcomed. Places that will try to marginalize your voice marginalize your contribution, and you're going to feel worn out. You're going to feel exhausted from trying to row against the wind. You're going to wonder why. <laughs> why. Why are we doing this? Why does God put us in hard places and call us to do hard things, things that are overwhelming, things that will take us to the end of ourselves, to the end of our resources, things that seem impossible? That's what today's passage is about. 
In order to get the answers to those questions, you have to see two things, just two today. You have to see, first, who Jesus is. And then second, you have to see what you can expect from following him based on who he is. You have to see who Jesus is, and you have to see what you can expect from following him. So first, let's see what it says about who Jesus is. If you take these two accounts together, you discover that they tell a single coherent narrative, that all of the details from these two stories actually fit into a larger storyline. You're introduced to that storyline in verse 4 when you learn that it's the time of the Passover feast. It's the time of year that made you remember God rescuing Israel out of slavery in Egypt. That's the context for everything else that takes place. That's the reference point that makes sense of all the other details. So as you look at the other details, keep that reference point in the back of your mind. For instance, verse 3, you're told that Jesus is on a mountain with his disciples. Matthew's gospel tells you this is a desolate place. It's in the wilderness. You learn in the book of Mark that part of what Jesus is doing on that mountain is teaching. Now, think in terms of the original Passover. Think in terms of the other events associated with it. Think about how God brought Israel out of Egypt, and when he did that, he led them through where? Through a wilderness. He led them to what? To a mountain, to Mount Sinai. And what did he do there? He actually came down on that mountain and met with them in order to what? To give them his commands. To teach them. To teach them what he is like. You have that same exact visual picture here in John chapter 6, except instead of God and invisible spirit, you have a very visible Jesus. Here's another visual. Verse 5. There's a large crowd of hungry people in this desolate place, this wilderness. Again, thinking in Passover Exodus terms, it reminds you of the Israelites in the wilderness, and it reminds you of how God provided for them by giving them what? Manna, bread, every morning. That miraculously, out of thin air, he literally made food for them when there was no other food around. Here's another reference. Twelve baskets of leftovers. Twelve baskets reminding you of twelve tribes. Twelve tribes out in the wilderness having no needs, having everything that they uh, needed, all of their needs satisfied as God provided for them. And then although Jesus doesn't part the Sea of Galilee, there is this body of water that's in the way, in the way of him getting to where he needs to go to the other side. He walks how? Unimpeded to that next destination. Not only does he get there, but because he is with them, his disciples are also there as well with him. And it reminds you of the crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground. Now, any one of those elements on its own might slip past you. But John gives you a package of them, a list of them to do what? To make sure that you can't miss that what Jesus is doing there is retelling the story of the Passover, the exodus from Egypt, and the wilderness provision. He's retelling the entire story of how God saved and rescued his people to do what? To bring them into a new reality, a new life, with a whole new lifestyle. Only this time, the centerpiece of this Passover, exodus, wilderness story is not a God that you cannot see. It's Jesus who you can see. This Jesus, in the place of God's role, meeting his people on a mountain, moving them effortlessly across the sea in the face of fierce opposition, who abundantly overprovides for their needs, 
in a desolate place. The point of what John is saying here is to tell you God didn't simply rescue his people in the past. God is here right now in the flesh to do what? To rescue them again. And in case you miss the point that he is completely, totally, 100% fully God, there is a difference with this Exodus story. When God rescued his people from e Egypt, he parted the Red Sea so that they could walk on something solid. So they walked between these two walls of water on either side. Jesus doesn't go through water. Instead, he moves on top of it. It's a point of departure from the Exodus account. Very important point of departure because it reminds you of a different time where God was on top of water. It pushes you even further back into the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, where you learn that the Spirit of God hovered over the water at the beginning of creation. And what John is telling you in chapter 6 is that Jesus is here, hovering over the water, telling you that it's time for another creation telling you that it's time for a new creation. But this time, God is not alone. This time, God is with people. And this time, God is actively bringing his people out of an old world into a new one. This is who Jesus is, and this is what he's doing, leading his people into a new creation. That's what you have to see if you want to understand what's going on here. That's the first point. Second point, a little bit longer. If you're one of these people that he's leading, if you're following Jesus, if you are a Christian, then the question is, what does this mean for you? If Jesus is leading you into a new world, what can you expect? What should you expect? We're going to look at five things from this passage that are really important, five expectations that you should have then of what this life is like as you follow this Jesus, as he leads you from an old world, an old life into a new one. Five expectations. First, don't expect the larger world around you to understand what Jesus is doing. Don't expect the people around you to get it. And if they don't get it, if they don't get what Jesus is doing, don't expect them to get you either. Notice here the crowd in John 6. They understood part of what Jesus was communicating to them. Verse 14, they see the sign. They see that it's Passover time. They see the mountain in a desolate place. They see Jesus teaching. They see a fully satisfied crowd. They see 12 baskets of leftovers. They see all of that. In verse 14, they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They understood some of what this sign is pointing to. Now, if you don't know who this prophet is, it doesn't make any sense. They knew that this is the prophet who was to come into the world because they knew the scriptures. They knew something that Moses had written in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 18, verse 15, Moses told the Israelites, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so Israel's been waiting for this Moses-like prophet to come. The crowd in John 6 see the sign all of the things that remind them of the time when Moses was leading them out of Egypt into the wilderness, they make the connection. This must be the prophet that we were told to expect. All the indicators are here. The table's set. The time is now. They get that. And then they veer off. They make the Israel in the wilderness connections. But they miss that Jesus is center stage. Jesus is not taking Moses' role. 
Jesus takes God's role. They miss that. And so they're thinking in human terms. They're thinking Jesus is simply human. Fantastic miracle worker, but a human miracle worker. And they get the idea, if we could harness that power, think of what that could do for us. You have to supply some of their logic here. But they're thinking along these lines. When Moses did signs and wonders, he liberated us from Egypt, from Egyptian oppression. He delivered us. It makes sense then that when the prophet like Moses comes, it's going to be to liberate us again. Now, where are we experiencing oppression? And they think in human terms. They think physical terms. They say it's from the Romans. We were once ruled by Egypt. Now we're ruled by Rome. We'd really like to just have our own king. This looks like a great option. We'll make him king. Verse 15, we'll force him to be our king. Jesus sees this coming. Takes himself out of the play. Verse 15, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. Now why did he do that? Why isn't he excited that they want him to be their king. It's because they missed the point of the Exodus. God did judge the Egyptians because they oppressed his people, because they refused to listen to him. God sent the angel of death to kill all of the firstborn sons. He judged them for their disobedience to what he told them to do. But that decree of judgment hung just as much over the Israelites as it did over the Egyptians. Israelites had also rebelled against him. They had not fully obeyed him at every point, and so they too were in danger of experiencing his judgment when the angel of death came over. The only thing that saved their firstborn sons was a substitute. It was the Passover lamb. Passover lamb was sacrificed in their place, and God accepted that substitute so that his judgment didn't fall on them, instead on the lamb. It tells you that the Israelites were no more righteous than the Egyptians. They're in the same boat. That means that their biggest problem was not the Egyptians. The most oppressive thing that they experienced was not outside themselves, it was inside. That's why they needed the Passover lamb. Without the lamb, they would have faced judgment as well. That's the same problem for the crowd in John chapter 6. They also are oppressed, held captive, mistreated, by what? By sin. Yes, by Rome. But only by Rome second. They were oppressed first by the thing that oppressed everybody in Rome, in Israel, in the whole world. They were oppressed by sin. They were oppressed, here's where it gets complicated, they were oppressed but they were not innocent bystanders to that oppression. They were complicit in that oppression. Because where is the source of sin? It's from inside of them. They were the source of what they needed to be liberated from. That was the biggest need that they had to be freed from themselves. And so the biggest enemy they faced was not Rome. It was not Roman government systems and institutions. The biggest enemy that they faced was what created those systems and institutions. Individual, personal rebellion against God, against his ways of living life. And so Jesus withdrew from them. Not because he doesn't care about Rome oppressing them. Not because he doesn't care about injustice. Not because he doesn't care about oppression. You can't read his life. You can't watch what he does. You can't listen to what he says and conclude, oh, he doesn't care. He did care. But his approach was not to lead an armed revolt against Rome, even if he had people willing to volunteer 
to follow him. His approach was to transform individuals who would then transform the communities around them. American church has struggled with this for probably about the last hundred plus years. Since the beginning of the 19th century, the church has split. One wing has downplayed personal sin and championed issues of social justice. The more conservative end, in reaction, has emphasized personal evangelism. Now read the book of Acts. What do you see there? You see both. You see an order of priority, a first and then a second, but you see both. First, individuals are transformed. They are put in a right relationship with God, and then they are right with other people who have been put right with God. Then second, very quickly, those transformed individuals build transformed communities. Those transformed communities attract other people who are curious about what's going on there. Why is this different? People then are introduced to Jesus who's behind the community, and many of those curious people end up being transformed themselves as they encounter Jesus. That's the book of Acts. It's not either or. It's both and. There is an order of priority. There's a first, second. You have to, be, you have, to have transformed people to have a transformed community, but it's both and. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why he rejects the crowd's desire to put him up as this figurehead. He came to change individuals who would then change the world around them. Came to lead his people out of slavery to sin and set them free so that they could live the new creation lifestyle. Crowd wants to just have a king. They didn't understand what he came to do. You should probably not expect the larger society to understand that either. That's number one. Don't expect the rest of the world to understand what Jesus is doing as he leads you. Second, that's a negative expectation. Second, positively, do expect Jesus to throw you into the deep end of the pool. Expect him to create situations that are beyond your abilities, situations that you cannot handle on your own. Do you see what Jesus does with Philip? This is Philip's hometown area, and Jesus almost casually leans over and says to him, so, you know the area, where, where do you think we should go for dinner tonight? I don't mean just us, I mean everyone here. Y yeah, all 20,000 of them. Got any places in mind? You see what Jesus just did? No one in that crowd expects they're getting dinner. It does not cross anyone's mind that Jesus is obligated in the middle of the wilderness to provide for 20,000 people. No one expects that. It's not on anybody's radar, except Jesus' radar. He's thinking about something that no one is expecting, something that's going to put the disciples in an incredible bind if the crowd starts to catch wind of this idea. 20,000 people are now about to have expectations that didn't even exist a moment ago. And Jesus takes all of that and dumps it in Philip's lap. Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Think about what that means. I was joking with our administrator, Betty, the other day about this passage. Can you imagine what she would think if I said, hey, can you put together a church dinner for us, please? And, oh, by the way, I've invited 20,000 people. She would say, you know, you're crazy. How, how many modern-day grocery stores would you have to empty in order to feed 20,000 people? It's an incredible amount of food. Even if you could find that much food, how on earth are you going to lug it out to where the people are in the middle of this desolate wilderness? This is insane. 
This is an insane question. It's an insane ask that Jesus created. Intentionally created this insanity and then, (coughs) excuse me, intentionally threw Philip into the middle of it. Why? (laughs) Why did he do that? Because that's what God does with his people. Think back again to the original Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt that this new one reminds you of. That exodus was a very unpleasant surprise for the Israelites. Initially, they liked hearing that God was going to deliver them from their oppressors. That sounded great. They never liked how he did it. His methods caught them by surprise over and over and over and over. First, the Egyptians refused to listen to God to let his people go, and the Egyptians took it out on the Israelites. They made their lives even more miserable than they had been earlier. And the Israelites complained to God. Hey, we were better off before you got involved. They weren't expecting, the Israelites were not expecting this part of the plan. They didn't like what he was doing. God brings an incredible amount of pressure to bear on Egypt till the Egyptians essentially throw his people out of their country. Then the Egyptians change their minds, almost immediately send their army out to reclaim the Israelites, and the Israelites find themselves trapped. They thought they were liberated. They appreciated that. They liked that, but they don't like being trapped. They're caught between the Red Sea and this advancing army. And so they complained that they would have been better off in Egypt as slaves. They complained that following God put them in a place where they were going to die in the desert. In their minds, this is not how the plan is supposed to go. They didn't like what God was doing. They didn't like how he was doing it. God splits the Red Sea, destroys the Egyptian armies. The army, the Israelites like that. And then he leads them into the wilderness where there was no food, there was no water. And the Israelites complained again. The same complaint, that they had been better off in Egypt. That, in fact, they would have been better off dying in Egypt instead of following God because apparently the only thing that following God was good for was dying. They figured they could have stayed in Egypt, ended up with the same result. Saved themselves a lot of time and trouble. And in the face of their complaints, God does not back down. Instead, he actually raises the ante. He says to them, I did that on purpose. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Moses is looking back on the wilderness journey and he summarizes it for the Israelites this way. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. And let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God says, I did that. I took you down multiple paths that confronted you with situations that you could not handle on your own. I did that, and I did it on purpose. I did it to test you just like Jesus in John 6 would later test Philip. I did it to test you so that you would know that you cannot follow me by trusting your own resources in this world. I did it so that you would learn that you have to listen to me, that the problem of evil is too big. The alternatives to trusting me are so appealing. They make such great sense in this world. They're so appealing that I'm going to put you in places where you have two options. You're either going to trust me to give you what you need or you're going to fall flat on your face. Those are really the only two options in this world. 
Renewal main line. If you follow Jesus, you can expect him to do the same thing with you. The same thing that he did with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. The same thing that he did later with his disciples. The same thing that he's done with his people ever since. He will call you to do things that will make you realize you don't have the resources that you need. And that's part of his point. So don't keep trying to figure out how much money you would need in order to buy bread that you couldn't begin to cart back so that everybody could have a little tiny taste that would leave them completely unsatisfied. That is not the life that he's calling you to. It's not the point of his question. It's not the point of what he's showing you. Expect him to put you in places where you discover if he does not show up, if he does not provide, there is no way that you can meet the need that he's showing you, that he's calling you to deal with. So first, expect people around you not to understand what God is doing. Second, expect him to throw you into the deep end. Third, expect him to provide what you need in unexpected ways. See, no one saw any of Jesus' solutions coming. No one anticipated that Jesus would take five loaves and two fish and satisfy a large crowd. No one saw that simply having him in the boat would change everything. And no one saw that that meant that you could stop rowing now. No one saw those things coming except Jesus. Verse 6, Jesus asked Philip where they could get bread to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. If Jesus really has called you to something that's overwhelming, it, you don't need to despair. You don't need to shut down. You don't need to complain. Instead, realize that he only puts you there because he himself knows what he will do. Realize that he will give you what you need in order to do what he calls you to do. And realize that you're going to have to turn to him to get what you need. Martin Luther King talked about one of those times in his life. It was a time when God had called him to do something that was overwhelming, something beyond his resources, something that caused him to face the kind of opposition that you and I can't imagine. For about a month, Dr. King had been leading the Montgomery bus boycott, and he had started to receive death threats. Apparently, he was able to shrug off most of these, but one came in the middle of the night that shook him so badly that he could not go back to sleep. In his words, he says, it seemed that all of my fears had come down on me at once. I had reached the saturation point. I was frustrated, bewildered. Finally, I went to the kitchen and heated a pot of coffee. I was ready to give up. And in that moment, he started thinking about his wife, his daughter. He started thinking about how easily they could be taken from him. And he writes, I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I'm here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. Now I am afraid. And I can't let the people see me like this because if they see me weak and losing my courage, they will begin to get weak. The people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And he tells that in that moment, he felt an inner assurance urging him on, urging him on to stand up for righteousness, for justice, for truth. And the reason that he should stand up for those things was because God had promised to be with him. And he writes, at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. 
Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. It was an experience of the presence of God that he absolutely had to have. It was an experience that was immediately tested just a few days later. His, ho his home was bombed. He wasn't there. And while he was driving home to find out if his family was okay or not, he says he wasn't in panic. Instead, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly. My religious experience a few nights before had given me the strength to face it. Got to his house, found his family safe and unharmed, and then he went outside because a large crowd had gathered, large incensed crowd, and he calmed them down, urged them not to give in and return violence for violence. He continued to lead. If you are going to do the unexpected, overwhelming thing that God calls you to do, you are not going to do it under your own power. You will not be able to talk yourself into it. You're not going to be able to think your way through it. You won't be able to buy your way out of it. You're going to have to have the Lord show up and give you resources that you cannot have any other way. So first, don't expect the larger world to understand you. Second, expect God to put you in places that will bring you to the end of yourself. Third, in those moments, expect him to give you what you need to keep going. And fourth, expect God to send you people to do it with you. Philip isn't out there hanging out all by himself. He's stumbling around doing arithmetic in his head, trying to figure out how much money they'd need to buy, way too little bit of bread. But Andrew's out there. What's Andrew doing? He's looking to see if there's food that they might be able to scrounge up. They are in it together. Later in the boat, it's not just one disciple there hauling on the oars all by himself. Instead, they're all together facing the headwind. They're in it together. Jesus does create these overwhelming situations. You need to count on that. But he doesn't intend that you would handle those situations alone. He intends that you would be in this with other people that he's called in those situations too. This is so obvious, but it's so necessary. You are not going to be able to accomplish what God is putting in front of you if you don't lock arms with others that he's putting in the same position. He does not put all of his people into the same situation, but he never puts you into one and leaves you there out all by yourself either. Yes, he does save you individually, but he saves you into a body. He saves you into a community. And he intends that you face the needs that he's showing you from within a community. You need the people of God. The people of God need you. We say this here at Renewal Main Line. I'm going to say it again. What does this look like here? It means that you need to be in a community group. We say this constantly. Why? It's true. You have to share your life in Christ with other people. They have to share their lives with Christ with you. You cannot serve the Lord if you're, serving, if you're not serving with his people. When Jesus pulls you into a relationship with himself, simultaneously he pulls you into a relationship with other people. Take that pull seriously build relationships with your christian brothers and sisters relationships so that you can meet overwhelming needs together so don't expect the larger world to understand you expect god to stretch you beyond what you can do on your own expect him to provide all that you need to keep going expect him to give you people to do this with and last expect to be glad when the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, they're afraid at first. They don't know who or even what he is. But all it takes is him saying, it is I, 
Do not be afraid. And their fear is gone. It's all they need. Just like that, they're no longer afraid. Instead, verse 21, they were glad to take him into the boat. They were glad. Why? Nothing's changed, but now they have him. And because they had him, it didn't matter what else they had. Didn't matter what else they were facing. They were glad. They weren't upset because they had been scared. They're not complaining because of how hard this life is that he's leading them into. They're glad. Glad just because they have him. Do you know what that's like? To be glad just because you get to be with Jesus? Just because he chooses to be with you? You need to look for this kind of gladness when you're overwhelmed. This kind of gladness when you're struggling. You have to look for his presence. You have to expect that he's going to come close to you. You have to ask him to do that. See, this is part of what you have to experience. You can't just talk about this. You have to press into him. You have to ask him for his presence. You have to experience it. And once you experience it, you will be glad. Why is that? Because this one who puts you in hard, overwhelming places, facing opposition, put himself in a much harder, more overwhelming place, faced much more opposition for you. If you think about it, you notice that there's one thing missing from this account, this sign of the new exodus from sin into the new creation. Think carefully. What is it that's missing? You have food in the wilderness. You have a miraculous crossing of water. You have mention of the Passover festival, but you don't yet have the Passover lamb. You don't have the key to the exodus, the key to how God can judge all evil in the world without destroying you. You don't have the key to how you can be part of the new creation. You don't have the Passover lamb. Or maybe to say it better, you don't have the lamb sacrificed. This Jesus who puts you in hard, difficult places is on his way to putting himself in a much more difficult one, one that is much more overwhelming. He's going to put himself on the cross. He is the Passover lamb. He will be judged for your sin, for my sin, so that we can be set free to build a new community with him. If he's willing to do that for you, there isn't anyone better to be with. How could you not be glad? There isn't anyone who will ever give you more than he already has, and if he's given you all of that, surely he'll give you everything else that you need as well. There isn't anyone who's ever going to make you happier. Spend time with him. Experience him. Get to know him. Do that, and you will be happy to go wherever he leads. You'll be happy to go with whomever else he's leading there. You'll be happy to be way in over your head. You'll be happy to be misunderstood. You'll be happy simply because you have him. Lead on, O King Eternal, we follow not with fears. For gladness breaks like morning, where'er thy face appears. The cross is lifted o'er us, we journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. Lord Jesus, lead us. Forgive us, Lord, for the many times that we have balked at going to difficult places. Lord God, lead us where we need to go. Lead us where you need us to go. Show us the things that are overwhelming. And then, Lord, give us your presence. Make us glad 
Send us into those things, trusting that you will provide resources to reshape, to change this world as we wait for the next one. Lord God, do that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.